Please turn in the back of the Psalter hymnal to page 99, the Canons of Dort, the second head of doctrine, articles 1 and 2. We'll also read paragraph 7, which is uh, one of the rejection of errors. We'll continue our series through principal teachings of the Bible, the Canons of Dort bringing out the doctrines of sovereign grace. Here, the second head of doctrine is the death of Christ and the redemption of men thereby. Again, page 99. Article 1, God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. And His justice requires, as He has revealed Himself in His Word, that our sins committed against His infinite majesty should be punished, not only with temporal, but with eternal punishments, both in body and soul which we cannot escape unless satisfaction be made to the justice of God. Article 2, since therefore we are unable to make that satisfaction in our own persons or to deliver ourselves from the wrath of God, He has been pleased of His infinite mercy to give His only begotten Son for our surety who was made sin and became a curse for us and in our stead, that He might make satisfaction to divine justice on our behalf. And to turn over a few pages, page 102, paragraph 7, we reject the error of those who teach that Christ neither could die nor needed to die, and also did not die. For those whom God loved in the highest degree and elected to eternal life, since these do not need the death of Christ. For they contradict the apostle who declares, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Likewise, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ Jesus that died, namely, for them. And the Savior who says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And this is my commandment that ye love one another, even as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Let us take our Bibles and turn first in the Old Testament to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. It's found on page 997. This is one of the prophets often called the minor prophets because they're often shorter than the major prophets. Habakkuk, Nahum Habakkuk, chapter 1. We'll read verses 12 and 13. Habakkuk 1, beginning at verse 12. People of God, hear now the very words of God. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, You have ordained them as a judgment. And You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous? Than he. Let us turn to the gospel account of Mark, chapter 10. We'll read verse 45. It's found on page 1077. 
Mark chapter 10. We read this, Mark 10, 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. And turning over to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, it's found on page 1,244, Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. As far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation, we mentioned last time a fundamental question of life is who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? But along with that question about Jesus is what did Jesus do? Why did God send His Son, His beloved Son, to earth? Why did the Son of God suffer and die? God gave us the Bible so we would know. Yes, God gave us the Bible so we would know many other things, But He gave us the Bible especially to direct us to His Son, Jesus. We understand more about Jesus, not only from the New Testament and clear teaching there, but also as we reflect on the Old Testament in light of the New. For instance, what was the purpose of the Old Covenant sacrifices? Why was the blood of hundreds of thousands, probably millions of animals, shed deliberately, purposely, at the command of God? Christianity is involved in history, historical events. They're the foundation of Christianity. But merely being a historian doesn't make someone a Christian. One needs to know the meaning of the events and and move from what they mean to trust. To entrust ourselves to Jesus, who is at the heart of these events. So what did Jesus do? What did He come to do? Well, He came to die as a sacrifice for our sins. That's what I proclaim to you this evening. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. And first, we consider the horror of sin. As we do that, we think of a conscience. Conscience. Children, that word conscience, what it is, if you're thinking about doing something wrong, or perhaps you do something wrong, hopefully you feel bad. That's your conscience pricking you. When someone commits a a certain type of sin, perhaps lying or getting angry without a just cause or or gossiping or, or breaking the Sabbath day or taking God's name in vain, hopefully 
his, her conscience bothers him. After all, children, you've been trained that those things are wrong. One ought not to do them. But if someone does a sin and does it again, and continues in that sin, their conscience becomes hardened, even seared. Whereas at one time they, they would have blushed, they would have shrunk, they would have felt ashamed if they continue in it. After a while, they don't feel it at all. Their conscience is seared. Now, that's a danger for every human being. We're sinners by nature. We sin throughout our lives. And if we reflect on it, how often aren't you and I often numb to the severity of our sin? Unless and until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and convicts our hearts. And hopefully He does that to us throughout our life. And He does as we we ask Him to. But we see this writ large in our society. Think of our society today, our society in general, not even 50, 60 years ago considered homosexualism to be evil, a a heinous evil. But now today, what's happened? Well, it's broadcast openly on television. It's promoted, it's protected by law. And what's the case for homosexuality? It's paralleled by fornication, how common it is for people not to get married, but to live together for a while. Or, first or second date, to have intimate relations. Our society thinks nothing of that. And we see that mirrored in divorce. We see it mirrored in breaking the Lord's day, taking the Lord's name in vain. When I started working in engineering about 20 years ago or so, very few people did I hear that. Nowadays, it's very common in the workplace. Fallen man, sinful man, rationalizes, dismisses what is sin and says, it's a weakness. And then... Well, I had to do it. And then eventually, it's a virtue. Fallen man, sinful man doesn't think it's all that bad. The conscience, so to speak, society, is seared. And we in the church are tempted to this. In fact, we see it in many churches around us. The people of God see where you're tempted to compromise, to adopt the world's standards. Uh, young adults, when you text, you text OMG. You know what that means. Of course you do. Do you use it? I've seen Christian young people use it without thinking. Maybe you've read where a lot of young evangelicals think homosexuality, they don't think in terms of right and wrong anymore and that it's wrong, but they think in terms of justice and compassion and it's okay. Even those in the church are influenced by the world. We need the Holy Spirit to convict us of truth, to renew us continually, personally, and constantly as a body, as His people. Sin is horrible. All sin is horrible. And each sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. Murder, yes. Homosexualism, yes. Fornication, yes. Adultery, yes. Greed, yes. Lust, yes. Anger, yes. Lying, yes. Stealing, Sabbath-breaking, idolatry, dishonoring parents, gossiping, pride. Yes, we could go through many sins. The Apostle Paul listed some in Ephesians 5. We read just some of them there. And he concludes there with verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. We hear a lot of empty words today trying to deceive us about what is sin. Eh, it's not sin. Maybe someone you know, maybe someone you're related to has spoken empty words to you. Yes, we need to again and again hear God's truth. Sin is horrible. Sin brings God's wrath on those who are disobedient. It's right there in God's word. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is meted out in this life and the life to come. Therefore, the call goes out, repent. As long as one does not repent, the anger of God, eternal condemnation rests on that person. It's not a matter of just choosing a lifestyle. It's a matter of eternal life and death. So how does one go about removing God's wrath, removing that condemnation? Well, that's where we move in our second point, to the need for satisfaction. We read from Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to pronounce it. 1, verse 13, Habakkuk, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Habakkuk says to God, he does this in the context of God revealing to Habakkuk that he is sending the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, upon Judah as punishment for Judah's sins. He's shocked by that. He says to the Lord, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. We ended the first point asking how one can go about removing God's anger and condemnation. What, what can be done for sinners? For a God who is too pure to, to see evil, to look at wrong, to, to tolerate it. Again, those are God's words. Can God see evil and and simply choose to forgive it? Can God see evil if the one who committed it claims to have forsaken it? Can God simply turn a blind eye, a a forgiving eye to sin? Well, some say so. Many Arminians say so. That's not what Habakkuk's saying. That's not what we read in the Bible. God is too pure to see evil. He cannot look at wrong. He cannot tolerate it. Habakkuk doesn't leave it up to God's will or decision to endure evil, to overlook evil. He bases this not in the will of God, but the character of God. And our pew Bibles capture that very well there. And he said, you cannot look at wrong. You cannot. He cannot simply ignore sin. God cannot, by a wave of his hand, so to speak, remove our guilt. That would go against his character, who he is. God is love, and God is just. God is holy. God's love doesn't cancel his justice. God's love doesn't cancel his holiness. God's loving his elect does not remove his requirement, his character, that the elect be holy and blameless and righteous. We read in Ephesians, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The fact of disobedience calls down upon the disobedient, the wrath of God. Something has to happen so God's character is satisfied. Something has to happen so that God's love and God's justice and God's holiness are in perfect harmony with each other. Something has to happen because as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.13, God cannot disown himself. He cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. 
So what must happen if a sinner can escape, is to escape the wrath and curse of God? There must be satisfaction. God's justice, His holiness must be satisfied. We read in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That idea of ransom. It points to a a transaction, a payment. A ransom was paid. We heard of ransom recently, didn't we? Those missionaries who were kidnapped down in Haiti and a ransom was demanded, supposedly, give us a million dollars per person and we'll let them go. Now, details come out. Was money exchanged? How much? Did they keep abiding? Regardless, give us a million dollars, we'll let go one person for every million dollars. That ransom, that's what that is, that exchange. Well, while that's very wicked what they did, it's rooted, the concept even is very biblical. A ransom. God is love. God is forgiving. He releases us from the punishment due to us because of our sin, but His character requires a ransom be paid. Again, those aren't my words. Those aren't Dort's words. That's Jesus' words. A ransom. Now think about our situation. Fathers, you might simply overlook something your children do, an offense they do. Right? Isn't that always the dilemma of a parent? What balance do I have here? But what if a judge did that? What if a mass murderer was brought before a court of law and a judge would say, I love you. And even though you're guilty, I set you free. No punishment. Just a a few tears required to be shed by the murderer. A promise, try not to do it again. All's forgiven. Is that a faithful judge? Of course not. Now, a father, a father can forgive without punishing, but a judge, not a good judge. A judge must be consistent with what he is charged, commissioned to be an executor of justice. The crime must be punished. The penalty must be paid. Now, do you think that the office of judge in our society is something we humans invented? Has man developed the idea of justice? Of course not. It comes from God. Throughout the Bible, we record that God appointed judges, even giving commands to judges for how they are to exercise their office. And even with with unbelievers and Gentiles, all authority, read in Romans, is instituted by God. So the office of judge, like the office of father, it's modeled on God himself. We saw in our sermon series through Genesis, Genesis 18, 25, Abraham said to God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is judge. God is creator. God is the father of the elect. He has all these offices, so to speak, and God is faithful to each one. God is consistent with who he is, his character, creator, governor, judge, father, and therefore God's justice must be satisfied. A ransom must be paid if any sinner is to be saved. And Christ said in Mark's gospel account, He would pay that ransom. He would. Now, Arminians, even in the face of biblical reasoning like the Reformed brought out, still resisted. 
Stubborn in their error about God's justice, they went out to work out that error in, in how they thought about Jesus' death. And, and they would work it out in different ways. In fact, even Rejection of Errors, paragraph 7, it brought up something about what Arminians actually said, that Christ didn't need to die. Christ did not die, so God would accept those who were elected. Arminians would say the love of God, a number of Arminians would say the love of God was enough. The love of God sufficient to remove the sins of the elect. Jesus did not need to die for them. He did not need to die to remove God's wrath from them. Did not need to die to satisfy God's justice against them. I've heard with my own ears someone in the Arminian strand who said God's a God of love. That, that idea of wrath is pagan. No, it's biblical. We read it there in Ephesians. The ransom idea in Mark. And so Arminians came up with different reasons, purpose for the death of Jesus. And so we need to consider what the biblical reason is that Jesus died. And we move to that then in our third point, the need for a substitute, the need for a substitute. As we consider substitute, the need, let's return to Mark 10, 45. At the end of that verse, Jesus says in regard to himself, he will give his life as a ransom for Many, for many. The Greek word that appears in our pew Bibles as the word for, it's the word anti. Now, there are many passages we can turn to that say in English of Jesus dying for someone. But often, then, if you go back to the Greek and you look at what the word is there for for, it could possibly be translated in a different way. And so some would say, aha, you see, it could be translated that, and so it's not what you mean. That can't be said for this word, anti. The Greek word we find here. Jesus makes clear, unmistakably clear, he gives his life as a ransom in place of many, for many. It's a substitution. Christ's life for others. Christ's life is the ransom, the price paid for the others. Now, why is a substitute needed? If God's justice must be satisfied, has to be satisfied by someone other than you, other than me. We can't do it. Because we're indebted to His justice. We have nothing to pay. Again, those hostages in Haiti, they didn't have a million bucks to give. And we owe God a lot more than a million dollars. We need someone who's holy, who's righteous, who's fulfilled all righteousness, We need someone who's like us, not an animal, because humans owe the debt. We need someone who can pay the great debt we owe. We need a substitute, one who is the son of man, but also the son of God. If someone like an Armenian says, as we read in the rejection of heirs, he didn't need to die, and he didn't die for that. He didn't believe he died, but he didn't die for that. Well, here's where the issue turns the need of a substitute. That's critical to the second head of doctrine. Miss that, we miss it. The substitute. It's a historical fact. Jesus died on Golgotha's cross. But what does it mean? What is the importance of Jesus' death? And again, here's where errors come in again and again. And we can spend a lot of time looking at various errors. There are many. We'll briefly, we'll just cover just a few that have been found in the history of the Christian church that we still find around us today. 
there's the moral influence, the moral influence idea of Jesus' death. That Jesus' death shows God's great love in that he suffered with his people. Jesus' death was the death of the accursed. And so when people realize God's great love, he would do this for them. Wow, won't they be impressed? Won't they turn to God in repentance? Why don't you look at movies and you see the, the sacrifice? And, oh, don't you just feel moved by that? See, that's what Jesus did. It's the ultimate movie. And God then forgives people because they've turned, they've changed. That's the moral influence theory. Others hold to something like an example idea, an example that Jesus models for us how to live, how to die, and so it's hoped will follow his example. When people see the right example, they're impressed. And they'll turn away from their sins, and they'll follow in Jesus' step, and God forgives them then. You see, there's an example there. Well, a third is a governmental theory. That God's, Jesus' death allows God to demonstrate how much he hates sin. And people, don't you think God's a pushover? He'll freely forgive you when you repent of your sins, yes, but look how angry he is against sin. Look, he punished Jesus for it. You see, and so they'll be led to repent. They'll be led so they don't suffer God's wrath. And that way, justice in God's government of man is upheld. He's not a pushover. It's the governmental theory. Those are three common errors, errors regarding the meaning of Jesus' death, why God sent his son to be accursed, to die on the cross, We've simplified them. We trust it's fairly accurately portrayed. But do you see the common thread through all those? They're all focused on man's response to Jesus' suffering and death. What effect Jesus' death had on a human. And no wonder, because those who put forward these views of the meaning of Jesus' death, they're the same ones who say it's up to man's free will to make the decision to turn to God. You see, they're connected there. If the linchpin is man's decision, man's free will to choose Jesus, well, then he needs to be persuaded, convinced to accept him. And and so Jesus' death persuades, convinces. And so they turn then from sin. It's that influence upon them. You see, that's, that's the connection there. They don't think God's justice had to be satisfied. No, sinful man had to be satisfied, persuaded, convinced, and turn, and then God forgives. It's as though instead of man being indebted to God, God's indebted to man. For in order to justly condemn someone, God has to come up with a way to convince man that God is righteous and holy, God is loving, and and man, you should turn. God says, well, I did my best. I gave my son, I did all I could do to save you. Since I did all I could do and you still reject me, I have no choice but to be wrathful. You see what you've done to yourself. How then to convince man to turn to God? You see, that's the meaning, the intent, the purpose put upon Jesus' death by them. Now, of course, Jesus' death has a great impact on us. We don't deny that. How could it not? But that's not the ultimate purpose and meaning of Jesus' death. 
could have read from Hebrews 10, verse 4, which says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. You see how the Bible speaks. It approaches it then. He cannot deny himself. It's impossible. Those things cannot. Impossible. Those wouldn't be said if all that was needed was to have an effect on man. Of course, all the blood, all the blood of animals, it could be done if it just had to have an effect on man. All you have to do is shock man. Why not? Why wouldn't God, instead of sending Jesus, reveal his might against the mountain and send a, a big voice saying, I despise sin, you will die, turn from it, boom, and do that every ten years? People throughout the generations that could be impressed by God's great might and they're told God will destroy that. How is it necessary for the Son of God to become man, to suffer and die on the cross, something that happened once in history, far removed from us in space and time, something we have to be told about, something that has to be recorded in a book that it's in man's words. Why not hear every time? God speak. Why not a recurring display, an annual event? We have elections every four years. Why not God have something across the world that, boom, every year? We could multiply questions. That heart is, what does the Word of God say? And the consistent testimony of Scripture from beginning to end, well, beginning after sin came into the world, is the focus is to satisfy God's justice. It's pointed at propitiating the wrath of God against the sinful people. And then, of course, the sacrifices of animals, no matter how many, no matter how violent, could never take away the sins of even one human. Their purpose was to point ahead to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No demonstration of God's power and creation could ever take away the sin of one man. The Bible presents the meaning of Jesus' death as fundamentally directed toward God, not toward convincing us. Now again, Jesus' death has an effect on us. It does. And it was done so sinful man would benefit. The Bible certainly teaches that. But that's not its primary focus. That's not the linchpin, the primary value of Jesus' death. Again, we come back to this issue again and again and again whether it's the baptizing of of infants or whether it's the doctrines of sovereign grace contained in the canons of Dordas taught in Scripture. Does salvation come down from God to us? Or does man ascend up to God? That's the religion of man. Man to God, the divine, whatever. The Tower of Babel, whatever you want. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, all from man up. But true religion, Christianity, God down. God saves sinful man completely. Sinful man has no part to play in his own salvation other than the need. There's no middle ground. Although some would seek to claim that salvation is both. It's ultimately one or the other. It's from God or from man. So you can see some of the seriousness of these doctrines of sovereign grace. Who gets the glory? Where is your trust? In your faith? Your decision and you being convinced, have I been convinced enough? Am I sorry enough? Or is it in God? Why do you come to church then, congregation? 
Let's apply this. Do you come to be motivated so you can do something? We come to praise God, don't we? We come to have God work grace within us, work faith within us, receive His righteousness, and then transform us so we can live in the power of His Spirit. And so it is here in how we understand the death of Jesus, focused on man, convincing us, or on God. The Arminian is so intent on preserving the rights and the freedom of man, which are nowhere taught in the Bible. He will denigrate, he will devalue, he will dismiss the death of the Son of God. Not in words, of course not. They all say, oh yes, the Son of God and his death and that. But where it leads to. Why? In order to preserve an unbiblical exaltation of man. You see, that's part of what's at stake here. And the Arminian pays lip service to God, the value of Christ's death. They're convinced. You take a closer look at what they're really saying. Haven't we been taught throughout our lives, especially lately, what's the end result? What's, what's really going on here? And we see. And maybe they don't even realize it themselves. Hopefully they don't. Hopefully it's just they're confused, ignorant, blinded, rather than purposeful. But you see, it makes a mockery of the death of the Son of God. And that's the way it is. When sinful man is exalted, God must be dragged down. When one seeks to elevate man above where God has placed him, then one necessarily then is seeking to pull God down. The Bible teaches Jesus' death is focused on God. His death satisfied God's justice against sinners. His death satisfied God's justice for us in our place. That's the primary value. We call this the penal substitution teaching of Jesus' death. Jesus suffered the penalty for our sins. That's where penal comes from. And He did it as our substitute, in our place, the penal substitution. It's because of what Jesus' sacrifice is and what it accomplished that we later will speak of it, will come to in this head of doctrine, as it being targeted, intended, limited even, to the elect. Because He was our substitute. He suffered the penalty sinners deserve. Because God's justice against the sins of the elect, His justice was satisfied. The way has been cleared for God to pour out blessings upon the elect. Blessings earned for us by Jesus Blessings Jesus paid the ransom for. God never goes back on His word. Jesus restores them to us. For all those who in childlike faith simply trust in Jesus. God can rightly act as judge. God can rightly act as father. God is faithful to who He is in all of His wonderful glory. He has not denied Himself. And look through the Scriptures, then you'll see this teaching of a substitute. It's, it's one of the threads. It's one of the ways we're trained. Scripture brings out again and again. Ah, there it is. You read through the Bible, you see it again and again. Isaiah 53, clear example. The book of Hebrews. Even what we read in Mark 10 in the Gospel accounts. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. The Arminian position distorts so much of our God and our Savior Jesus. And that's because truth, true truth, 
it comes from God. And when one part is removed, it affects the whole. Exalt man's will and, well, we've, we've got to change what Jesus actually did. We've got to change what the Holy Spirit does. We have to change what God the Father did. It's, it's all related, this truth. But there's one other aspect of distortion of Arminian error that, that we want to consider this evening. That is the love of God. The Arminian claims to exalt the love of God for sinners more than the Reformed. But what exalts God's love more? Is it a love, as the Arminian says, that goes out to all indiscriminately, yet the all-powerful God doesn't do anything for them? Is it a love that's full of well wishes and pleasant words and nice examples and, oh, can't you wring your hands? Don't you see how evil is? I, I love you. I'm showing you this. Just turn A love that says to fallen sinners, men and women dead in their sins, if only you'll do this, you'll be saved. If only you will follow the example of Christ. If only you will be impressed enough with the sacrifice of Christ. If only you agree to tremble at God's wrath shown in Christ. If only you'll do this, I'll accept you. Is that you exalt God's love? No. It's powerless. It's worthless. That's not divine love. We must look for a love that looks upon us in our sin and misery. Realizes the price that must be paid if those particular sinners and rebels are to be saved. Are to be brought out of their hell. And then it pays that price. That ransom. He sends his own son to suffer and die. To suffer the agony and torment of hell. Why? So our debt would be paid in full. So eternal life would be earned for us, restored to us. Which love is greater? What love does the Bible point to as God's love? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. There's God's love. God's love for His people shown in the death of Jesus for them. You see, that's where the focus is. He gave His Son. Not to convince people. That we would have life. God's justice satisfied. Hearing of God's love in Christ, that call goes out belief. Now, we'll go through times where we are emotionally stirred at the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. That's great. Sadly, we aren't stirred enough, actually. And that shows how sinful we are. Boy, it better not depend on how much I'm stirred. Because I'll never be stirred enough the Son of God giving up His life for me. It's not our emotions, it's not our feelings, it's not our motivation, it's not our resolve that save. And that reflects in our worship service. We don't try to stir people up because that's not the linchpin. It's Christ proclaimed. It's the Holy Spirit working. It's God who saves, God in Christ, Christ crucified, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, coming again on the clouds of glory. Christ saves. And all those who simply trust in Him receive Him and all His benefits. He's mighty to save, strong to save. He is not a potential Savior. He is our substitute. He did it. He died as a sacrifice. That's the Bible's message. Hear it and believe in it, believe in Him. Know and trust. Believer, you're right with God. 
praise God for that. May God receive all the praise. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us, sending your Son. Jesus, thank you for being the ransom in our place, our substitute, suffering the penalty, pain, the penalty, the price we owed, a ransom for many. And thank you for telling us again and again of that in your word and showing it with the sacrifices and throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, but fulfilling finally in your own dear Son. Strengthen our faith in you. Humble us before you. May we go forth confident then, Lord. Not us, but you. And confident then to face our challenges in life, not because we're convinced or persuaded, but it's the power of Christ in and through us. Praise be to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.